turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. This is what we sung. This is what we've heard. This is what it means to live the Christian life, to turn our eyes upon Jesus and to live a life that is transformed by the gospel, transformed in such a way that we live between grace and glory. This is what it means to be a Christian. It's to live a life that is transformed by the grace of God transformed by the grace of God. The grace of God is God's unmerited favor. It is the gift that we don't deserve yet receive. And for us this morning, as we open up God's word and as we look to the second half of Titus chapter 2, we find there a lesson for us. A lesson for us in how to live in this present age. How to live between grace and and glory, and why it matters. Because the grace of God teaches us where to look, it teaches us who we are, and it teaches us how to live. And so would you turn in your Bibles to Titus, if you haven't already. Titus is a short book near the end of the Bible. It's uh, all the books in the New Testament that start with T are all together, so it's easy to find. Find a book that starts with T and go one way or the other, and you'll find Titus, but it's just short. Likely in your Bible, it's only a page or two. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles over on the table over there that you uh, certainly can use for our time together this morning. And if you don't have a Bible, you can keep that Bible uh, as our gift to you. Uh, but once you've found Titus, we'll be looking in chapter 2 which is the big number in our Bibles. Uh, our Bibles, when they were originally written, uh, did not come with chapters and verses, but those have been added later so that we can uh, find our way around. And so the big number that you'll see in Titus, there's one, two, and three. And so we're going to be in chapter two, and then we're going to be looking at verses 11 to 15. Those are the small numbers. And so once you've found that, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy and true word? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You can take a seat. This may be a strange poll. Maybe it won't be very successful. But how many people have read a book by someone with the last name Ortland? Any people have read a book by the last name Ortland? So there's this family, uh, Ray Ortland. There's a Ray Ortland Sr. Uh, he is no longer living, but he had a son, Ray Ortland Jr. And then he's got a bunch of sons who keep writing amazing books. So the Ortland family is just this collection of great authors and uh, 
godly men who serve the church and serve us. But I want to talk about uh, Ray Ortland Jr., who wrote a book called The Gospel. It's just called The Gospel. And it's, in, it's, it's a short book. It's, just a, it's, it's small in size and short in length. And it's part of this series of books, uh, and the series is called Building Healthy Churches. And each book in the series, I think there's 12 of them or 16 of them, they're all just immensely practical. They all are focused on a different topic, and they talk about how a healthy church is built in each of those topics. And so some of the topics are just so obviously practical. Prayer, uh, church membership, church discipline, uh, expository preaching. Uh, there's a, you, you could go through the whole list, and there's all these really practical things of where you can easily say, yes, that would build up a healthy church. But then there's this book, it's, and they're all different colors in this series, so it kind of looks like a rainbow on your bookshelf. But this one is the green one, the gospel. And it's interesting because I think a lot of the times we would look at a book called The Gospel and we might not be able to connect the dots quite so well of saying, how could this be practical? How does the church apply the gospel to be a healthy church? Now, if you're a Christian, uh, I think we would all agree that the, the gospel is necessary to build a healthy church. The gospel is necessary to build a healthy church. But I think if we press that question a little bit further and we had to answer why, or maybe not even why, but how, how does the gospel build a healthy church? We could run into problems. Now, this book is immensely practical. But I think the reason why we run into problems is a lot of times we think of the gospel as just doctrine. Now, doctrine is good. We've run into that multiple times through the book of Titus, that sound doctrine builds up the church. But if we think of doctrine as the only thing that the gospel is, gospel doctrine, we fall so far short of understanding what the gospel is and what it's for, what God accomplishes through the good news of Jesus Christ. And Ray Ortland, I think, is successful when he writes this book and talks about how we can apply the gospel. And not just because he's a wise, older pastor, uh, not just because... Uh, you know, we could think of it as this new silver bullet in church ministry. No, he's successful because this is the way God designed it to be. That a church to be healthy needs both gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And that's essentially Ortland's thesis through this book. That a church needs to have gospel doctrine, needs to believe the right things about the gospel, and then it needs to have gospel culture. It needs to apply the gospel. Needs to, to know how we live out the gospel. And we can see this. This isn't, a, again, this isn't a new silver bullet. This isn't a new idea. This isn't a new thing. This is scriptural. We can see this through the letters, through the New, Tes new Testament as an example. We see this consistent pattern. And we could look at Ephesians as an example. We worked through Ephesians about this time last year. And we see that the first three chapters are gospel doctrine. And then the next three chapters are gospel culture. We see the gospel explanation in three chapters, and then we see the gospel application in three chapters. Gospel doctrine, gospel culture builds a healthy church. But this morning, we look at only a couple verses, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, and we find both gospel doctrine and gospel culture married together. And it's a beautiful thing. And not only that, we see it happen twice. Did you notice that? It happened twice. In verse 11, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all peoples. So that's gospel doctrine. That's the good news. Now gospel culture. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Oop, here we go. Back to gospel. So that was gospel. So we had doctrine, culture. Now back to uh, doctrine. 
waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness. And don't miss it. Here we go back to gospel culture. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. And then Paul concludes in this letter to this younger pastor, Titus. He says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So in a few verses here, he marries together, he hitches together these things that the Bible never separates, which is gospel doctrine and gospel culture. And that's the lesson for us today as we look to Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. And it's the lesson for us as we ask the question, how, how do we be a healthy church? And our big idea from these verses is the grace of God teaches us where to look, who we are, and how to live. The grace of God teaches us where to look, who we are, and how to live. And those will be our points as we work through the text this morning. Those lessons from the school of God's grace will be the grace of God teaches us where to look, the grace of God teaches us who we are, and the grace of God teaches us how to live. And so let's start with the grace of God teaches us where to look. Now, it matters where we look because in this life, in this present age, we are left grasping in the dark. Our view is clouded because of our sin and the brokenness of this world, and so we are left searching. Our eyes are open, but we're not seeing. We're left searching for hope. And so it is really important that we don't just get an exhortation to look, but that we know where to look. And Titus chapter 2 tells us where to look. Because if we don't know where to look, we'll be left grasping. And we'll try. We'll have, like I said, open eyes and we'll reach for all kinds of things. We'll, we'll look for satisfaction in our work. And we'll say, if I can just climb the ladder, then, you know, that's where I'll find ultimate fulfillment. But we know that that's not true. No matter how high you climb, you'll always be missing something. Or maybe we'll look for hope in relationships. But you know that even the best relationships... Don't fill that hole in your heart. Maybe we'll look in all these different places, in pleasure, in purpose, in identity, and in all of these ventures, we slip down the slippery slope of idolatry. We take maybe even good things, but instead we make them God things. This is why it's really important that we know where to look. Now, firefighter movies would be a lot less interesting if they were realistic. Uh, and that's, I mean, they're totally realistic. The, the chaos and the craziness and the, the stuff going on. But, but what I mean by realistic is just being in a fire. When you are in a house that's on fire, you can't see anything. It's normally just pitch black. And so this is why sometimes firefighters will train just completely blindfolded because you've got to be able to operate without being able to see with your eyes. So there's just smoke, you'll see black and gray and maybe the faint orange glow of a fire. And so I'm saying firefighter movies would be a lot less exciting if for an hour in the middle of the movie it was just black and you could just hear beeps and bops and things crashing and water spraying and things like that. But that's really what it's like to be in a fire. So firefighters need to know not just to look, because you could have your eyes open, but they need to know where to look to get their bearings when they're in a fire. And by look, again, I don't mean just having open eyes. Firefighters need to have different ways to get their bearings so that they're not left grasping in the dark. 
Now, one of the ways that a firefighter gets their bearings, if you have questions about this after, you can talk to Sean. He knows all about this. When a firefighter needs to find their bearings in a room, what they'll often do is find the hose. Because the hose is your lifeline for multiple reasons. If you find the fire hose that you brought in with you, you can follow it two directions. One direction takes you to the nozzle. That's your lifeline where you can put out the fire. The other direction takes you out to the truck that the hose is attached to. And there's fresh air. Then you're out of the danger zone. Okay? But when you get to the hose, you need to know which way you're going to go. And so what a firefighter practices and trains doing is that in high-stress, intense situations, they'll find a coupling. The coupling is how you connect two hoses together, just like your garden hose. There's two ends, they screw together, and that's how the hoses are attached to each other. And so when a firefighter finds a coupling, they can feel, even with their thick fire gloves, even without being able to see anything, even with all the other chaos going on, and know that the one side goes to the nozzle, based on how it feels, and the other side goes to the truck. So it's an important skill, a life or death skill, for firefighters to know, not just to have their eyes open, but to know where to look for the pieces of information that they need. We are all left grasping in the dark in this life. Our eyes are open, and we're searching for hope in all sorts of places, in our purpose. Uh, we're looking for, for hope. We're looking for identity. But our view is clouded. We are hopelessly short-sighted. But the grace of God teaches us where to look. In Titus chapter 2, we see these two references for appearing or appearances. In only a few short verses, we see these two references to appearances. And these two appearances are like the lifeline you find in a burning building. Looking at these two appearances that in this letter to Titus we see, it's like you found the fire hose. And in one direction is extinguishment and the other is freedom. Okay, so stay with me. It's a bit of an abstract metaphor here. But it's like you find those two sides of a coupling. On one side, we see in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So there's our first appearance in the text. The grace of God has appeared. Well, what does that mean? Well, it's past tense. What's it talking about? What brings salvation for all people? Well, it's talking about Jesus. It's talking about God's son who came into the world to save sinners. Now, Jesus is not a way to salvation. Jesus is not uh, even the best way to salvation. Jesus is the only way. When you find that lifeline, which is Christ, there is a, a road to freedom that you find. There is freedom in Christ. And apart from finding Christ, apart from him, we are left grasping in the dark. We can search everywhere. You'll spend the rest of your life on this pursuit, and you'll never find the hope that you need. You'll never find the freedom from the chaos that's around you. But when we find uh, this grace of God that appeared, we find that lifeline that leads to safe and fresh air. This is what it means to look backward. When I say uh, the grace of God teaches us where to look, in one view we need to be looking backwards because we look backward to the cross of Calvary and that's where we find salvation because that is where Jesus paid it all to save people, all people, it says. Now, this text is not teaching universalism, that all people will be saved. We know that's not true, just consistent with the rest of the Bible. But what this is teaching us is that salvation is available for all people, and that is good news. 
You don't need to be a certain level of righteousness. You don't have to just be good enough. You don't have to be a certain race. You don't have to be, have a certain uh, status financially. This is good news for all people. It is a lifeline that we can all follow to safety. And so if you are hearing these words this morning, this is the equivalent of you finding that lifeline and seeing the direction that you need to go to freedom and, and following it. That's a call for you today. Turn from your sin and trust in Christ. Follow Jesus on this path to freedom. Find real hope in him today. It's Jesus where salvation is found. The grace of God teaches us where to look. And the first place that we see in verse 11 is to look backwards. But that's not the only appearance we see in this text. We see in verse 13, a second appearing. Why does it say appearing twice? Well, that's a very good question with a very good answer. Because we don't only need to look backwards, we need to look forwards. In verse 13, it says, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We wait as Christians, eagerly anticipating the return of Christ. He died, He rose. And he was witnessed by hundreds of people. And then he ascended into heaven. And he promised that he would return to take his people home. That he would come to judge the living and the dead. And that is a blessed hope for those who are in Christ. And the reason it's a blessed hope is because apart from Jesus, apart from the work that he's done in the past and and the confidence we have in his future return, we don't stand a chance We could not stand under the judgment of God. But the reason why this is a blessed hope is because Jesus is the one involved. He has offered to take your place. And so for those of us that are in Christ, this is a blessed hope. As as God's word teaches us where to look, as we look forward. Because even though we live in this present age that is tainted by sin, we live between grace and glory. Do you notice those two words? In the passage, as we look at these appearances, the grace of God has appeared, and then the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We live in this present age between grace and glory. But we need to know where to look, or else we're going to just be swimming in this dense smoke of the sinful world that we live in, and we won't know that there's hope on either end, that we can look backwards and find hope in the grace of God, or we can look forward to the glorious return of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we look back, and we rest in that hope. We look forward, and we rest in that hope. Because when we look backwards, we see that the penalty of sin is paid for. And as we look forward, we see that the presence of sin will be utterly extinguished from the endless streams of God's grace. When all things will be made new, when there will be no more suffering, no more pain, no more sin. And so the grace of God teaches us where to look. Titus 2, 11 to 15 is for us crawling through that smoke-filled room, finding that hose, feeling that coupling, and knowing that there's hope on either end. That's the good news of the grace of God. It teaches us where to look. But it doesn't only teach us where to look. It teaches us who we are. 
The grace of God teaches us who we are. That's our second point this morning. Well, before we ask or answer the question who we are, we need to know the answer to the question who we were. Who we were. We get that answer in the passage that we'll be looking at next week, Lord willing. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to the various passions and pleasures, passing our days with malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's bad news. But what that's describing there is the deadness that we find ourselves in apart from Christ. Even our best works, our best acts of righteousness are not good enough. But what does our passage say? If that's who we were, what's the good news here? Well, our passage says that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What is, think about that word salvation. It means to be saved. That's an obvious answer to a simple question. But think about what it really means to be saved. Have you ever had your life saved? Because to be saved from the penalty of sin is truly amazing. We don't deserve it, yet we receive it by the grace of God. God looks at you and he sees somebody that's worth saving. Not because you were good enough, but because he loves you. He loves you. That's the story of the Bible. God redeeming a people for himself. I love, I I wish we didn't lose it. I love reading kids' storybook Bibles because it talks about God's rescue mission. Why don't we talk like that more often? That's exactly what it is. It's God rescuing his people. It's God redeeming his people. And so when we read verses like verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, I mean, our minds should be going all sorts of places if we know our Bibles. As we think about uh, someone being redeemed by the merits of another shed blood, our minds should immediately go to the Passover. When God's people uh, would sacrifice a lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost and that they would be shielded from God's just wrath based on the merits of another, a spotless lamb. As we think about a people being redeemed and a people being rescued, we think of uh, the next part of the story when God's people are led out of Egypt, when God rescues them out of slavery. And the Passover and the Exodus were real events in history. But they are a shadow of a greater sacrifice, a greater substitution, a greater rescue, and a greater redemption. And it's all of that wrapped together that we find perfect fulfillment in Jesus. I heard an amazing clip of a sermon this week by a pastor, a preacher named Herschel York. Uh, He's a pastor down in the States at a church called Buck Run Baptist Church. It's like the most American church name, the Buck Run Baptist Church. But Herschel York preached a sermon. Maybe you heard it if you were on Christian social media. And so I want to give him full credit because it's just such a good illustration. But I want to with, you know, unapologetically rip it off because it's so good. He talked about the event that happened at the National, National Gallery in London. Did you hear about this or, or see this in the news? When two climate protesters uh, came in to this gallery that's filled with priceless works of art, 
And they, what they did is they, out of their jackets, they pulled cans of tomato soup, and they walked up to Van Gogh's irreplaceable masterpiece, Sunflowers, and they dumped the tomato soup right on the front of the work. Then they superglued their hands and glued themselves to the wall and, and gave a long speech about the climate issues. Now, people were livid. Right? Even if you think that they have a point, why destroy this precious, irreplaceable work of art from so long ago? And so people were mad. It makes your blood boil. But once they got their hands unglued and once they were escorted from the premises, uh, the gallery released a statement. They said, although there is some small damage to the frame, the painting is unharmed. Unharmed. I mean, if you look at the footage, it's right up against it. Well, this is because the gallery was prepared for this. They had installed a thin layer of glass, almost imperceptible to the human eye, between the frame and the work of art. And they put that piece of glass there so that if anything came against that painting, it wouldn't stand a chance at ruining it. And this is a perfect picture and parable of what Jesus does for us. He gave himself to redeem us. Think about those words in verse 14. Who gave himself for us to redeem us. The sin that threatens to destroy you cannot stick because of what Jesus has done in taking your place. God prepared for this. Before the foundations of the world, he predestined that we would be spared from sin and ruin. Because Jesus' righteousness covers those who are in Christ. So that the sin that should be splattered all over us, leaving us ruined and guilty, cannot stick. But Jesus never deserved death. He lived a sinless life, yet he went willingly to the cross with you on his mind. He knew every sinful, shameful, lawless thing that you have ever done and that you will ever do. And he said, I'll completely cover that debt with my life. I will stand in his place. I will stand in her place. I will take the full brunt of what sin can throw at this person. And I will face death so that ultimately they don't have to. And this is because you are more precious than any piece of art. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So precious that Jesus would willingly stand in your place. God's mercy and kindness are on display through the work that he has done in doing and is doing in calling a people to himself. The church is 
literally a billboard of the saving work of God. Because you notice, uh, we have to always ask the question, why, why is Paul repeating himself in this letter to Titus? We talked about word economy already. This is such a short letter. Why does he repeat himself? Why does he talk about gospel doctrine and gospel culture, gospel doctrine, gospel culture? Well, look at what he says after this. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The church is a community that is purchased with Jesus' own blood. Even though we were strangers, now we are a family. And that's the good news of the gospel. It doesn't only just, you know, tick a box and then make us just uh, like God as a disappointed father who just brings us back regrettably. That's not how it works. What God does in and through the gospel by his grace is call a people to himself. And that's good news for us today. And if that all wasn't enough, the grace of God not only teaches us where to look, it not only teaches us who we are, because that's gospel doctrine, it teaches us gospel culture. It teaches us how to live. The grace of God teaches us how to live. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. If we separate those things, you could do a little thought experiment here. You could think of a church that has great gospel doctrine, but no gospel culture. They believe the right things, but they don't live it out. Well, what does that equal? It equals legalism and hypocrisy, right? They say one thing, but they don't live it. So hypocrisy. Now, try the opposite thought experiment. Take gospel culture with no gospel doctrine. So you want to you know, live out this great community, but you're not grounded in anything. You have no gospel doctrine to root yourselves in. Well, what is that? Well, it just sounds fragile. Right? There's nothing. It, it, great motivation, but there's nothing holding it together. But when you take gospel doctrine and gospel culture and you me- mesh them together like God designed them to be, you get something powerful. And so it's important that we don't miss this step in understanding how the grace of God teaches us how to live. This is not a message of works righteousness. We do not earn our salvation by being good people. But because we're saved, God calls us to imitate him. Gospel doctrine and gospel culture. We see that the grace of God teaches us, or to use the word that, that Paul uses here, trains us a better way. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The grace of God teaches us two things about how we are to live. Teaches us to say no and teaches us to say yes. Teaches us to say no and teaches us to say yes. First, no. What does it teach us to say no to? We'll see that in verse 12. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. This is the call of the gospel. It's to turn from our sin. To turn from our sin. We can only do that by God's grace. God's grace transforms us. We will not be perfect in this present age as we live between grace and glory. But we are called to renounce these things and to trust in Jesus as Lord. 
And the grace of God teaches us to say yes. This is an important thing that we miss, I think, as we consider how to live like a Christian. Living like a Christian is not just saying no to sin. It's saying yes to Christ. It's saying yes to following his way. Yes to imitating him. We looked at this last week. Whether you are old or young or a man or a woman, we are all called to live self-controlled lives. And we see this right in the second half of chapter 2. Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is counter-cultural and costly discipleship. We've already looked multiple times how uh, the culture in Crete was just this sinful, wicked, twisted culture. And so what the call is here is to live in a way that's counter to that culture. And that's the same call for us today, to live this counter-cultural and costly discipleship. Because we come back to, to where we started and asking the question, what, what makes someone a Christian? Well, it's not by just being a good person. It's not by going to church. It's not by reading your Bible. It's not by having parents who are Christians. It's not by, you know, even just deciding that you're going to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who is transformed by the grace of God. Transformed by the grace of God. And by God's help, we can do this. God doesn't call us to impossibilities. By his help, by the spirits working in us, we can renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. We can, by God's grace, be not only redeemed from the penalty of sin, but by God's help, we can renounce the power of sin in our lives. And again, we await our blessed hope when we are freed from not only the penalty, not only the power, but also the presence of sin. We will be glorified like Christ. But sadly, we fall for cheap substitutes what Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls cheap grace. Not that there is such a thing. But he has this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And I want to read uh, a bit of a lengthy section, longer than I would normally quote, for you as we think about uh, the danger we can fall into of looking at the grace of God and cheapening it in a way that, that God never does. Bonhoeffer writes, Cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake man will pluck out an eye, which causes him to stubble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciples leave their nets to follow him. Such grace is costly, because it calls us to follow, but it is grace, because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. 
Because above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for your life. That is the beautiful and costly grace of God. The grace of God teaches us to stare long and hard at Jesus. To look backward to where our hope is found at the cross. And the grace of God teaches us who we are in Christ. That we are saved. We are redeemed by the merits of the shielding blood of Christ. And the grace of God teaches us to say no to sin and yes to godly living so that we can glorify God with our lives. And we do that together. The grace of God creates a people. Brothers and sisters, we're talking about the church. And Paul concludes with exhorting Titus to be grounded in these things. He says, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. He's saying, don't make this cheap. This is costly, glorious grace. We need the grace of God so that we can grow in being a healthy church that is zealous for good works. We need gospel doctrine. We need to know where to look and who we are in Christ. But we also need gospel culture. We need to be a church that is called out from the world to live together a life of costly discipleship by God's grace and for his glory alone. Let's pray. Oh God, we are amazed every time we think of your glorious gospel that saves and transforms. Help us, God, to not cheapen what was so costly to you. As we spend time now reflecting even again the costliness of grace as we share in the Lord's Supper. Help us to turn our eyes upon Jesus. That as we live in this present age clouded by sin and a misery, we can rest in the hope that we have in Christ's past, present, and future work on our behalf. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.